Magnus Podcast, episode 17. This is part two of Love and Dominion with Patrick Downey. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. Glad you could join us before we get into Patrick Downey's seminar on love and dominion. Part two, uh, hey, you know, online education is going to be a uh, a pretty big thing in the near future because of obvious circumstances in the uh, global epidemiology climate, shall we say. And uh, if you're going to do school online, you know, why pay like $100,000 a year for it. It doesn't really make sense, right? And why not do it right? Why not study with the greatest minds in academia, reading the greatest books ever written, contemplating the greatest ideas ever contemplated? That's exactly what we're up to at the Albertus Magnus Institute. You can be a part of it at magnusinstitute.org slash fellowship. It's not too late to apply for the classes we have launching in the spring, and it is completely free. MagnusInstitute.org slash fellowship. And if you don't want to take a class, you just want to help us out in this great work, why not give us some of your hard-earned money? Become a monthly benefactor. We could use it. It's tax deductible. That's at MagnusInstitute.org slash give. We are grateful for your generosity. It has been amazing up to this point and uh, really encouraging to our team as well. So thank you for all of your support. Without further ado, here's part two of three of Patrick Downey's seminar on love and dominion. Enjoy. Well, one one detail we'll need to deal with um, in three seventeen. Made the claim earlier about the woman lacks authority and that there's ruler ruled relationship. Uh, one could say, "Oh, that's just the second account of creation. It's not in the first account because there's no ruler rule, but there is the word dominion." But is there a dominion between the man and the woman? Here would be the, the strongest indication that there is dominion. Just as God has dominion over man, man as a male and female has dominion over animals, does the man, qua male, have dominion over the female? Here, when the temptation scene is from the serpent, she, he speaks to Eve. Eve gives it to the man. Only after the man eats are their eyes opened, and then they hide from God who told only Adam not to eat of the tree, he told Eve. So he, so you have this whole sequence of communication, ruled and ruled, in terms of listing. Uh, when, when Adam is cursed, God says in 3.17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you, etc. So, so the problem with Adam is that he listened to the voice of his wife when he should have been listening to God. So this idea of listening is the act of obedience, of being ruled. So God should rule him, and he told him not to eat of that tree. He overruled God, revolted. Instead, he listened to what he should rule over, his wife. That was the fundamental sin. It wasn't Eve's sin. It was Adam's sin, and it was because he listened to the voice of his wife. But that's why later on in the Garden of Gethsemane that recapitulates the scene in the garden, his body, the body of Christ, is his wife. It's going to be crucified. It's going to suffer. He is saying, he's basically saying, what should I listen to, my will or your will? And he chooses to listen to his father's will. He doesn't listen to the voice of his wife. But that's how he, in fact, redeems his wife, by not listening to her voice. How is it not a sin of Eve, though, if she's the one that actually... Uh, listen to the serpent and ate. Like I understand why it's a sin of Adam, but I don't know how, yeah. how that isn't a sin of Eve. The detail would be her, their eyes aren't open after she eats. She doesn't have a private opening of the eyes. The eyes being here and actually not seeing anything, but the sign that you're, you've blinded yourself. Okay, they're not open after she eats. They're only open after he eats. Uh, but that and the reason for that is because he is the one to go back to Aristotle. He's the one that has authority. The, the ruler has authority, so when the ruler screws up, you're all screwed. But if the subjects screw up and the ruler doesn't, he can redeem the subjects because he's the one that has authority. He's, so to speak, the, the boss, the ruler, uh, it's up to him to make it or break it. 
but it's not up to the subjects. They don't make it or break it. It, it goes from the top down. And so when the top screws up Adam, then they both suffer. But when the top gets it right with Jesus, then everybody enjoys. So this, so the, the biblical story you could say is from, since the fall, women suffer men with Christ. Now women enjoy men. So as Eve is to Adam, she suffers Adam. Because, well, put it this way. Imagine, imagine if she gave it to Adam and he didn't eat. If he did eat of the tree, their eyes wouldn't have been opened. Nothing would have happened. See, he's the one that screwed up. That's why nothing occurs when she eats. It's because he eats that it happens. So he could have redeemed her then. He could have ruled over her for her benefit. I said, no, honey, I'm not going to eat because I was told not to eat of this tree. So you can offer it to me, just like the serpent said you should eat it, but I'm not going to listen to you or the serpent. I'm going to listen to God. Then he does what a ruler should do. He listens to what he should listen to, reason and wisdom. But instead he listens to her. And then he screws them all over. Well, so Jesus has to do that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who should I listen to? Should I listen to my father or should I listen to my the suffering my body's going to endure? Well, he doesn't listen to his body and then he redeems his body. He rolls over it properly by obeying his father. So why punish her, though? I mean, if she's comfortable mm-hmm. in that role of mm-hmm. being ruled over, mm-hmm. can you, I guess, make the argument that the serpent had that rule over mm-hmm. her? Like, had that authority mm-hmm. in that time? Yeah. You know, she's used to having someone have dominion over her. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Then mm-hmm. why curse her with childbirth and things like that? And- well, because we're all in it together. In other words, if your leaders screw up, you suffer. See that because because that's the nature of rule. Because you're not just on your own ruling oneself. You're the ruler. You're dependent upon your rulers for good and ill. So she's dependent upon her rulers for good and ill. So she gets ill for it. But she's not directly culpable as though she's screwed up because she has she is dependent the way on her ruler the way he's not dependent upon her. But they're both dependent upon God. But God is ruling them well. But then they cut off this good dependence upon God, and now they're on their own. And now she's stuck on her own relative to him. And then, of course, the serpent is, he's an animal, a creature. He's going to crawl. He's going to suffer, too, because he's the first taste of how the animals will suffer humans getting it wrong, too. You see that in Romans, where all of creation cries out in suffering for the redemption of the children of God. So since we're, we're supposed to be ruling over creation for its benefit, ruling over animals and not eating them, all animals have suffered human beings being screwed up. So the world has to be redeemed by human beings being redeemed. That It'll always be exploited, and Mother Earth will be exploited the same way wives are exploited by husbands. All these female images are dependent upon the man getting it right. And that's why Christ is going to redeem the woman and also redeem creation. Because it goes back to the dominion. Male and female created them and gave them dominion. So this is unpacking what's involved in dominion and rule. And rule is always where you're in it together. And then getting back to the Rousseauian thing, the, the, the Rousseauian solution, feminism, etc., is to just get rid of rule entirely. If you got rid of rule, nobody would suffer. But then that just means you've internalized the suffering with the violence. So you've got to redeem yourself from the violence rather than just shift it around with, by getting rid of rule. And equality just means you oppress yourself. Isn't that the image of the flowers on the chain? Right. Oh uh, yeah, for yeah, that we're chained. We're so admits we're chained, uh, but we could put flowers on it, and flowers are equality. Flowers just make it smell better, but you're still fundamentally in chains. But you want to be really redeemed. You want to be redeemed from the chains of self-imposed servitude. Okay, well let's let's go. It's kind of a strange jump, but let's go to um, Genesis uh, twenty-two. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we could do that, but that's not about love. That's I mean, that just confirms this thing because Cain's sacrifice is the equivalent of clothing themselves with aprons. Abel's is the equivalent of shedding blood. God accepts Abel's sacrifice, and so it brings out why murder is what you're hiding. But so just as Adam and Eve, what were they ashamed of? In one sense, they become murderers towards one another. They're trying to oppress one another. 
Um, well, that's clear. Cain and Abel are trying to oppress one another. Abel knows it, so he kills an animal. It's better that I oppress an animal than I kill my brother. Cain doesn't know it, so he kills his brother, and he doesn't kill an animal. God approves of Cain's sacrifice. So you're shedding light on why um, uh, God covered them with animal skins. He knows the seriousness of what's wrong. It's this violent, oppressive political relationship where you're oppressing those you rule over. But, um, yeah, and that's also, you could go to Noah's sacrifice. When Noah makes a sacrifice after he gets off the ark, relative to animals, he, he kills an animal. And God says, well, where is that? You're forcing me to cover every step here, Allison. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I've done it so often, I just feel like I'm being redundant. I know, I've heard you say it before. Yeah. So but when, they, when Noah gets off the ark, um, uh, in Genesis 9, and he's made this uh, altar, um, and he mentions that, and God smells the savor and says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Okay, that evil heart is the, what they're embarrassed about. That's what they're ashamed of, the evil heart that is, wants to oppress animals and men and women want to oppress each other. Uh, so then that's why God made, Noah made the sacrifice, and God thinks that's sweet. And so then God says to Noah in 9.1, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So you're back to multiplication that leads you to the future. There's something about the blood that's carried in the future that's going to redeem the bloodshed that's threatening. So that's why the blood of Noah, later we'll see the blood of Abraham. Finally, the blood of Jesus is the blood of David. When it, that blood is shed on the ground, it's going to be that which redeems the thing inside of you that's ashamed, that blushes, that wants to murder one another. Because we finally... God himself gets murdered, and that overcomes that. But it's made clear in, in 9.1 that ties us into the very image of God. When he says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the air, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your lifeblood I will surely require reckoning. Of every beast I will require it, and of man. Of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Okay, so that ties everything together. That, that brings the whole sequence of thought. Because the image of God is this political image, dominion that we've screwed up. That's what we're ashamed of, is the desire to shed blood. Uh, Cain and Abel shed blood. And that's it, the, why we shed blood is because we no longer have dominion right. It's oppressive dominion, and that's seen with the animals. But we weren't allowed to eat animals. Now, for the first time, we're allowed to eat, eat animals. But when we eat the animals, we've got to pour the blood out on the ground to remind ourselves that we are now predators towards animals, but the real issue is that we're predators towards one another. Man is wolf to man. That man and woman have been wolf to each other. They both are preying upon one another the way you'd prey upon an animal and eat it. So now when the animals run away from you in terror, that's the way, that's because of the evil imagination of our heart. We're kind of running away from one another in terror. We're terrified of one another, and we've got to protect ourselves from one another. And God makes that clear. That's the problem. That's, that's why he brought the flood. Yet he spares us and leads us into the future because that bloodline from Noah in the future, if you keep your mind on the blood and then you multiply, somehow he'll overcome that need of us being uh, predator and prey to one another. Until then, you'll finally get it, and this is the Messianic prophecies, the lion will lie down with the lamb. So the lion and lying down with the lamb in the messianic kingdom is because then you'll restore what you should have, that there's no predation and prey relationship in, in creation. Animals are eating one another. You don't have to destroy something else for you to live. And, and that's because, the, and then he brings in the image of God here, because the image of God is what's been lost, because God rules over us for our benefit. We can only conceive of ruling for our benefit. So he's got to restore dominion to creation. And that is to restore uh, ruling for the good of the ruled, which means you'd never eat an animal.
not for the sake of vegetarianism, but for the sake of the animal's not happy with this process. That's why they're running away. So they screwed up about it. So you pour the blood on the ground to remind you that this is that something's wrong here. It needs to be redeemed. So then you keep your eye on the blood, and then when Christ's blood is shed, wow, this is what it's all about because he's the Lamb of God. So he's like this animal, but when his blood is shed on the ground, that's the blood that God is wanting us to think about all the time. Look for that blood being shed. And the Lamb of God seemingly below us is really the God that created us. So he's taken upon himself the prey, become prey to us being his predator. We attack him to redeem that thing in us that is screwed up. Okay, so that's that, that makes sense. Not too much blood here. I don't know how people read the Bible without focusing on the blood, but they do all the time. They try to make it nice. Yeah. Okay, so, so the last thing relative to love is, what's the first mention of love in the Bible? Abraham's son Isaac. Yeah. So that's a significant usage because in the it's not just but it's not just what in reference to what with the son um, what's well, his only begotten son um, but what's he say he's got to do to that son have to sacrifice him yeah, yeah. which in one sense means to murder him yeah, yeah. Okay. so in Genesis 22 after these things God tested Abraham and said to him Abraham and he said here am I he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. So here, oh, that sounds great. Now the, now the love story begins. we got the word love out there. And yet, what's God telling him to do? Take that son you love and sacrifice and kill him. Uh, and, the, and the way to see this relative to lover and beloved is God calls to Abraham. He says to God, here am I. So to respond to God is, here am I, here am I. It means that God is the one calling you, you're listening. So you are, uh, so to speak, if you're saying, here am I, you are the, how would you put it? Are you the lover or the beloved? If you're saying, here am I. Mm-hmm. Lover. Well, let me put it. Uh, I don't know, beloved, because you're often. Yeah. No, what you're what no actually, how would I put it? Yeah. <laughs> No, put it this way. Are you if, if you say, here am I, are you the ruler or the ruled? God says... Well, are you trying to announce yourself or are you trying well, who, to offer yourself? Who's, who's announcing themselves? God is. Yeah, and you're responding saying, here am I. So you're saying, I, I will happily be ruled by you, God. To, what, tell me what you want and I will do it. Does that make sense? Here am I. All the, all the prophets, Moses... Isaiah says, here am I to God, which means they are the servants of God. Oh, because you're saying Abraham said that. Abraham says that to God. Oh, oh. Um, yes. I thought you were trying to say that God was saying, here am I. No, no, but, but, that, yeah. but that's, where I'm getting, that's where I'm getting to. Yeah, I screwed that up. That will be later on. That will be in Isaiah 52 or 51. Yeah. But you see, that, you see that proleptically in Genesis 22 because he says to God, here am I. It says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah. So Abraham rises early in the morning, and on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Then Abraham said to his young son, stay here with the ass. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in hand the fire and the knife. They went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here am I, my son. That's the reversal. So there the son says to his father, here's the wood and sacrifice. Here's the wood and the knife. Where's the sacrifice? And by him calling out to his father, his father says, here am I to his son. There you're seeing the reversal. Because Abraham saying, I'm going to be your servant to his son. Well, so, so just as you become God's servant, God will redeem you by him becoming our servant. So he is going to be like Abraham saying this to his son, God will provide himself the sacrifice, is when later on in Isaiah 51, God will say, in that day, the good, good, the, the good news will be that God will say to his people, here am I, the same way Abraham said, here am I to his son. So that will be the, the father is going to sacrifice himself to redeem his child, the son that he loves. 
So that's kind of the reversal that was tasted beforehand with Abraham responding to his son. And it's a reversal of ruler and rule. So that's why Christ is the servant. He redeems us by becoming our slave. Even though he's truly our master, he redeems us by becoming our slave so that we can then become masters again, rule properly for the good of the ruled. So it's the restoration of rule, but that requires the, also the restoration of love. So that goes back, God will become the lover, just as Abraham's the lover of the son. And he will do everything to redeem his son, his beloved, uh, by him uh, becoming the son. Because Christ, God will say that of his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So Christ becomes the beloved. Um that his father loves, but he's going to lose his beloved the way Abraham didn't have to lose his beloved son. God, the father, will lose his beloved son. But by losing his beloved son on the cross, that's the way he shows that he is fundamentally this lover, that he loves us so much that his son will take upon himself the scarlet, the ugliness, and redeem us and make us beautiful and truly beloved again. But that's all, the foretaste of that is all here in the back and forth of here am I and between Abraham and Isaac. And this is also that the covenant that he's made earlier with Abraham. He makes a covenant that your descendants shall be as the sand in the sea and the stars in the heaven, and through you all the nations shall be blessed. That that covenant with Abraham is the covenant of uh, marriage. That that's where God covenants Himself. He marries Himself to Abraham and his descendants, and so He will be faithful to those descendants and that bloodline, even though that bloodline will be stubborn and will be faithless. He is going to redeem that bloodline. So that's the that's the marriage covenant where the that later on throughout the Bible you have this marriage image with Hosea and Gomer, that the husband marries a woman who's a whore, unfaithful, and yet his faithfulness will redeem her and make her faithful again. So the covenant works because the the faithfulness of the husband, not the bride. That goes back to Adam and Eve. Her infidelity, listening to the serpent doesn't matter. It's whether Adam's faithful. If he is faithful because he's got the authority, he can redeem her. Likewise, the man can redeem his bride if he's faithful, the way she can't redeem him in the same way. He's got to redeem her. Is is that a kind of redemption? Is it actually of the woman herself, or is it like of her as a wife and like in like the mm-hmm. whole marriage mm-hmm. that's redeemed? A kind of both. I mean, why would you separate the two? Um, well, we had talked about before how you know, it's, it's good for like a husband and wife to stay together just for the sake of the marriage and like for mm-hmm. the sake of the child. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if you have a mm-hmm. husband who is faithful and a wife who just continues to be like mm-hmm. um, unfaithful, then, you know, is, is the marriage still you know, mm-hmm. a good thing? Or, because. I mean, the wife could just continue to be unfaithful. Yeah. Well, that, that's when we're talking about marriage. Focus on the vows. Uh, what you're being faithful to are the promises, the vows you made. That's making the covenant. You covenant with one another the vows. And so then the woman's doing whatever. She's not being faithful to her vows, faithless. But he's being faithful to her vows. So he's being faithful to the marriage all along because he made the covenant. But then his fidelity to the marriage is also redeeming her bringing her back to where she should be individually, but that's to bring her back to that she's able to fulfill the promises she made. So it gives her the capacity actually to fulfill her vows by him fulfilling his vows. That's why marriage's third thing is kind of redemptive. It takes you up beyond yourself. And insofar as you partake of that, both of you now can are able to do what you want to do, but you seem to be unable to, to fulfill your vows. His fidelity will allow her to finally fulfill her vows. So that's individually to be, so to speak, keep her promises. But the promise is the thing that allows her to keep it because of who made the promise on the one end. So that's why marriage is the third thing. God, a sacramental marriage, God's covenant is the most important thing. And then the two covenant men and women can fulfill their vows because they're part of a larger covenant that they're partaking in sacramentally. I mean, but in that scenario, though, like, how did the Ten Commandments kind of fit into that? Uh, well, you're, that you could only obey that promise, obey this what you should do, because God makes it so you're able to obey the law. In other words, you're a lawbreaker. You know you should obey the law. You break the law, 
uh, you cut yourself off from this covenant you should have. But how can you finally obey the law of God who marries himself to you through Christ? The bridegroom gives you the capacity to obey the law. You can't obey it apart from him. That's a whole argument in Romans. That only through Christ, who's our bridegroom, are we able to obey the law. You can't do it on our own. On our own, we just it turns out we're lawbreakers. The law just reveals that we're unable to obey the law. But then because he but because Christ is married to us, but he's also, so to speak, the son of the Father, he by obeying the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, that obedience means that insofar as you join with him and become one flesh, you partake in what he does, so you partake in his obedience. His obedience becomes your obedience. Because your husband's obedience allows you, the bride, to obey through your husband because he's got the authority. But what if, what if it's the husband that doesn't, isn't being faithful? Well, then the, 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 the woman's in the state that she's, she can't redeem the husband directly, but she can call him back to the larger marriage that he has to be redeemed through, the larger marriage he has. He's a bride of Christ. So one sense, she's got to call him back to be the bride rather than the groom. And the true groom here is Christ. And so insofar as he sees them married to Christ, then he could be the bridegroom to his, his bride. So he, the man's in that weird position. He's got to be both the man and the woman. He's got to be the, to be the man to the woman. He's got to be the woman to the man Christ. That's to be in the member of the church, to be the bride of Christ. So she's just calling him back to be a true bride, which could be tough for a guy. But, like, let's, let's like... In reality, though, seriously, I mean, yeah. like some men are just mm-hmm. have that, yeah, where it's mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. all the time, yeah, there's yeah. no like sense to it mm-hmm. as far as like infidelity, yeah, right. But in that case, what do you mm-hmm. the wife's just supposed to stick around for that? I mean, like, what, yeah, well. I, mean, she, I know we're talking like a Catholic sense, so I, I mean, I kind of right, that, yeah, but. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, because it wasn't a conditional covenant. I promise, as long as you stay faithful, it, because you're making it. You're making a third thing. You're making a covenant because you're partaking this larger covenant. So your fidelity is not found in your own ability to be faithful, which neither the man or the woman really has on their own naturally since the fall. They can only obey the promise through something bigger, the bigger covenant. That's why sacramental marriage, that's the only hope you have that either one could get their act together. Because if it's just your strength and your ability to fulfill this covenant, nobody has the, that constancy to fulfill this covenant. That's what's happened since the fall. I just think I couldn't do that like if I was in that situation. Well, that's, that's tough for everybody, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but you you need the redemption as much as he would. It's not like guys are just the problem. They are the larger problem because they have the authority. Uh, so you're going to suffer the guy more than he's going to suffer you. That's almost guaranteed. But at the same time, both of you need equally to be redeemed because you need to be redeemed as the woman, just as like he needs to be redeemed as the man to pull this thing off. But that's why when you die, there's no giving or taking a marriage in heaven. Because the marriage you have here is like a shadow cast by the real marriage that where all bodies are united. Everybody's married to that one husband, Christ. Everybody's the bride of Christ. And this is a body shared across space and time. So your marriage here really isn't that important relative to that marriage. So that you got to keep your eye on that ball because you're going to fail in this marriage more or less. You're going to finally die. Uh, you could die and get remarried. All sorts of things could happen because the, this, these are shadows relative to the real marriage of Christ to his church. That's what really matters because that's the only marriage where you have genuine obedience, a, a covenant kept fully by both partners. All the other ones are shaky sh- resemblances to that. The partaking it, but intermittently and partially. So your marriage won't redeem you. Your marriage with Christ will redeem you. Yeah. yeah. I just think that's a hard thing to remember when you're being cheated on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like right. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no doubt. Yeah, it's tough. But you know, take all this talk away. I mean, if if it's just two people contracting together, you know, well, how long is that going to last? You know, yeah. that's yeah. the whole divorce culture we live in. They just 
the, the willful people trying to fight this out and then it finally busts because it's like a, a brittle reed. It's going to snap because there's no flexibility of dealing with either one's weaknesses because there's no hope for anything else. So it's just raw will and then the loss of will and we'll start all over again. Uh, but here you have you can you can deal with all sorts of things because you can forgive and you can redeem one another because you've fundamentally been forgiven and redeemed. You just have a lot more hope in the Catholic context. There's not a whole lot of hope in the secular context, and there's no forgiveness. People don't forgive one another. That's why divorces are so bitter because there's just no one will forgive one another because what's you just pissed off that somehow you saw what people are up to all the time. I thought I was immune. Well, nobody's immune from this nonsense. I thought you were strong, damn it. I thought I married a strong man. Well, <laughs> there's not a man strong enough to pull this off. <laughs> there is one man strong enough to pull it off, but that's the only hope other men have, that they have that strength. They've got to get it as a gift. I think I just hold adultery like in my head at a higher level than mm-hmm. any other thing. Yeah, it's a big thing, yeah. 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 No doubt about it. Yeah. There's an account of divorce in Matthew. <laughs> Matthew 19, this is is Jesus, it says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. Mm -hmm. So he does make the distinction of except for unchastity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we were talking about quite a bit, but it seems to be that if the woman is unfaithful to the man, is the way it's phrased, Mm -hmm. uh, then... I don't know if divorce is okay, but if you marry somebody else, it's not adultery. <laughs> well, I know the Greek word they use for unchastity is porneia. Mm-hmm. I think, which I believe refers, I mean, I'm not entirely sure what porneia means, but I know that the, that the way that the church interprets it is to mean that the marriage was never valid in the first place. So even if you're validly married and one of the spouses is unfaithful or it's unchaste, that marriage is still valid. But if the marriage was invalid in the first place, that's the case for it. Mm-hmm. The exception would be. So it would be. What do you mean it would be invalid? In the like world? if there was, if the couple thought they were married, but they weren't. Like if there was some extenuating circumstance that that made the marriage not a marriage. Like if I married Joe and it turned out Joe was a serial killer and never told me, that mm-hmm. would be an invalid marriage. Or I mean something like, that. like if there's some sort of um, rift between the couple that one party does not disclose to another. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and that's the whole role of annulment, which would be you don't really have a covenant to begin with. But here, the passage here is if you have a divorce, you have a covenant. But even notice what it says in 19.8. It said, then for your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife. So it's only because the heart is a heart. It's assuming you have this because of the everything's screwed up. You're not getting the real deal. But from the beginning, it was not so. Okay, that's in, there's more in another gospel on that, but the key thing is, in the beginning it was not so because you have this, the fundamental marriage is the beginning that goes back to Adam and Eve prior to the law of Moses. And so that's, that relationship of Adam and Eve is the real marriage we're talking about. That's where the screw up happened. So to deal with marriage, you've got to look at the second Adam, the second Eve. So that's again Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the new Adam, the second Adam. His marriage is the real marriage that we're talking about here. So the law would seem to think you could muddle through and fix it. Well, the only way to deal with it is this radical newness of a new marriage. And that's why religious, they're, they're partaking directly in this new marriage. The priest is married to the church. The nun is married to Christ. They, they are just cutting to the chase and deal with that fundamental marriage that's going to last. But the marriages here now, they, they aren't just trying to muddle it through with the law, they they have to be seen in the light of this bigger thing. But, I mean, I guess, how does the unchastity um, that Jesus is talking about here really relate to, uh, you know, Jesus in the garden as the new Adam? Because it still says that it, uh, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. So it does seem to be that mm-hmm. unchastity is um, large enough or uh, big enough to Allison's point that it's... Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, then... That would be there, the tradition. You could just get rid of your wife because you're tired of her. You don't like her. She's not cooking and cleaning well. So you, I divorced my wife. Stamp your foot three times. You're divorced. That sort of thing. Well, it's got to be a serious thing. But then, uh, if you marry another, you're committing adultery. But then that's 
relative to the details of the law. But then the larger thing is, and this becomes then the issue of the church, you just can't get divorced and remarry. Regardless of the reason, even if one couple's unchaste, it doesn't matter, you can't remarry. So that, But that's kind of the logic, because that's the bigger marriage we're talking about here. But it's not in the fact that you can get divorced, it's in mm-hmm. the fact that you can't remarry? Yeah. Okay. So when it says that you, if you do get married again, then you're committing adultery, mm-hmm. adultery with God, and you're married mm-hmm. to a God, you're committing adultery? No, you're committing adultery with the wife you're married to. Well, but you're divorced. And if you marry someone else afterwards? Yeah, then you're... Still committing adultery to the woman you're originally married to? Right. Okay. If you're married, then you, you can't remarry. In other words, the, the argument fundamentally is divorce is not this thing that really has anything to it. Mm-hmm. It, it really is just marriage, and that's all you got. Um, but why is that? Not because marriage is such a rock-solid thing, because clearly it's not. Because it's devo- dissolved by the unchastity, etc. It's because the marriage that you can't get divorced from is the marriage of Christ. And so the reason the church has marriage holds in such high esteem that you can't get divorced and then remarry is because we're talking about the sacrament of marriage. That's what you're really upholding, the fidelity there. So that's what is being protected. And so that's why adultery isn't, you know, because humans are doing this sort of thing all the time. The thing isn't just to avoid adultery, is to realize, well, that's you're, you're valorizing marriage itself. It's not just being a contractual relationship between a man and a woman to negotiate their needs. So define divorce in the sense, though. So I think that's what we're missing. Like, to her question. Yeah. It would be to make the covenant and then break the covenant. I promise. Love you. Until death do us part, sickness and health. You know, the typical things of the vow. You make all those promises. Uh, look what you did last Saturday night. Let's have a divorce. So I didn't really mean it. I promised, but I didn't promise it. How can you promise and not promise? So, but if you break it, it's still there, though. Yeah. That's why it'd then be adultery. If you, oh, then you promise somebody else. Well, you can't promise two people the same thing. Yeah. So that, I think what you're asking, Allison, is that like divorce is just like human law that you're doing anything with. It's not actually anything with God. Yeah. So insofar as you, that's the mosaic thing, as though you're just negotiating contracts between human beings, if that's what it's all about, then, well, uh, you can talk about all this, but fundamentally, in the beginning, it was not so. That's where what marriage really is. And then, not only in the beginning, but then transcendently relative to God, that's where you're really seeing marriage. And that's why your marriage matters. It doesn't matter because you're just figuring out how to get by in your life between a man and a woman. You've got this bigger things at stake. Hence, sacrament of marriage is such a big thing. So all then the canonical law within the church, all these things are thinking that through and applying it. And so then people say, why are Catholics such sticklers about marriage? They seem to take it so seriously. It's because, not because they got a different law than Moses. It's because they are keeping their eye on the ball of the transcendent marriage of Christ to his church. And then fidelity relative to that is why adultery matters so much. So it's not just unchastity being a unique thing. It's adultery is fundamentally being adulterous relative to God. We are like Gomer in Hosea. We're whoring around with false gods. We're whoring around with other things. That's our problem. Male and, male and female do that. We're all unfaithful to God fundamentally. And then, of course, we do that in a marriage because we're fundamentally uh, whoring around with God. So that's what needs to be first redeemed, and our marriage has to be related to that marriage, and the fidelity has to be related to that. Well, was that it? Did we, did we read? Um, I'm trying to remember what else I had on that list oh, for dinner. We could, could we like go to Hosea? Yeah, but yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, Hosea was on the list, wasn't it? Yeah, all of us. Yeah. Well, no, I, well, yeah, I had both of them, that's right. Because I had two days on there. Yeah. Well, before we, we go to Hosea, just since we've got to put the whole thing together, go to Jeris- the New Jerusalem account. Just to show the importance of um, marriage here. So it's at the very end of the Bible. It's where the whole story is going. Um, Revelation 21. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Uh, so that's that's why this whole idea of, of the uh, the New Jerusalem finally has to be made fit for her husband, and you won't fully see it till the the New Jerusalem, and then it will come down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. But notice it's a city too. So this shows marriage and dominion politics. The political is tied into the very image of God. So man and woman is not pre-political, they're political. And then the political role of the man and the woman is part of the political quality of marriage. So it's always a political phenomenon. It's always tied into the city. So that's why dominion is a political concern. But yeah, what in Hosea are you looking at? I mean, well, when I was reading it, God seemed pretty angry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, most of it is him just railing on about mm-hmm. how terrible Israel and Ephraim is. And then at the end, he's like, no, because I love you, you know, I mm-hmm. won't do all these terrible things. Uh-huh. I assume that's the important part is that <laughs> <laughs> he loves hope so. <laughs> yeah, they deserve it. And, uh-huh. It would be just for them to be destroyed, but like his mercy mm-hmm. allows them to you know be to repent. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Why did you have us read this? Such a, like for that. Well, just the, it's the very image that Hosea is told by God to marry a prostitute, and, oh. she, and she has two kids. The kids aren't his own, and he and so God tells him to name your kid, not be pitied, not my own. So the kids are bastards. So so here she's unfaithful. She has kids that aren't his own. So that's why God marries himself to Israel. She's whores around. Uh, she has children of bastardy. So God could say, not my own, not to be pitied. Uh, but then later, he transforms and he says, uh, I will then, in that day, uh, will call my children pitied in my own. Because, um, how has he, um, in Hosea 6, he says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he is torn that he may heal us. He is stricken and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. So your capacity to live before your husband, Christ, God, and be a faithful bride to him will be because he, on the third day, will bring you back from the dead. You're torn, you're suffering, self-inflicted suffering, but he he tears you even more. It makes it worse, like hardening Pharaoh's heart, that he can bring you back on the third day and that you can live before him. So that's the transformation of Gomer. She will be able to live before Hosea, her husband, by God transforming her through his fidelity. And that will redeem her children as well. Um, so that's basically the love story of the Bible. The love story of the Bible is God marries himself to people that are stubborn. They don't obey him, they revolt, and yet he is going to stick with them. And he will finally make them fit on the third day when he comes back from the dead that his people can actually be his true and faithful bride. And that's what you see in the New Jerusalem. Finally, the bride has been transformed. She descends from heaven. That will be the full marriage feast. That You get the foretaste of the marriage of Cana, that Christ is going to celebrate this marriage where he's redeemed his bride, transformed her from scarlet to white as snow. So she becomes a born-again virginal bride. She can wear the white gown because is she lying, pretending she can wear the white gown? Well, yeah, she is a whore. She's not pure, but he made her pure when his blood was shed. So he took the bloodshed, the scarlet upon him, and he gives her the white gown because he took and gave her that virginity back by taking the the her harlotries upon himself. So that's all going on in the story of Homer and, Go- and Gomer and Hosea. Which is the only way anybody can survive their harlotries, their male and female. Right. So that's why 
the the need for forgiveness between a man and a woman is because who's free from this? This is the human state to be a harlot. That's that's the problem since Adam and Eve. Why why does like the the greater person like in the case of like why do they have to become the harlot to redeem mm-hmm. them? Like why not just stay you know mm-hmm. and then like redeem it in that sense? Like, why do you have to lower yourself? Yeah. Well, because you because you're not just it's not just cosmetically washing away this blood that's like dirt because they are scarlet from the inside out. That's the heart inside out, and so what you've got to do is transform the heart. Well, you can't cosmetically transform the appearances because that's you've, you've cosmetically could cover it up. That's what Adam and Eve, they cover their nakedness, but that, that allows you to survive it. But you've got to circumcise the heart. But to circumcise the heart, you've got to be given a new heart. Well, to give a new heart from the dead, you first have to, because of the demands of righteousness, you've got to somehow deal with the fact that your heart was truly evil. You can't just gloss it over. So Christ has to take upon himself what you really are up to. He's got to take upon himself the infidelities. The same way that Hosea's got to suffer Gomer's infidelities concretely in his body. He will suffer everything she has because you take upon yourself everything the bride has when you marry her. But she also takes upon herself everything the husband has when he marries her. So you've got to fully take it upon him. Upon Christ has to take it upon himself truly. And then by him coming back from the dead after suffering on the cross, everything that we deserve, he takes that upon himself. Now when he comes back from the dead, we come back with him because we died with him in baptism. And then we can truly be transformed by coming back on the third day with him. But he has to truly take upon himself the, the violence, the bloodshed, the scarlet quality of infidelity. Truly, rather than cosmetically. So that's the whole idea of the cross. He, he chose to suffer in his flesh what everybody deserves to suffer in their flesh. So he's kind of serving as an example, like a template for all other men, humans in that sense. Yeah, right. So so, so that would be if a man redeems his wife, as every true ruler should do, like a shepherd and a sheep, a king, what should a king do? He's willing to lay down his life to rescue that lamb. And if he's, if he's not willing to get killed to rescue this innocent lamb, he's a lousy king. So, so, so likewise, the husband, insofar as he should be like a king, should be willing to lay down his life for his bride. So any true husband, I mean, that goes back to the difference between men and women. A man should be willing to die for his wife and children. A woman shouldn't be in the business of dying for her husband. So that's what it is to be the ruler. That's the source of your authority. The man's authority is because he's expected to die for his woman. But you don't, the idie of your bride dying for you is absurd. Should die for her children. Yeah, she, she, yeah, she can die for children, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Titanic. <laughs> I feel like a woman, would be, a woman would be more likely to die for her children than a man would be. Yeah, but he should be dying for both. I'm, speaking of Titanic, yeah, <laughs> women and children first. So just as he's going to die for his wife, that included in the wife is all her children. So that's the idea. A woman doesn't have authority over children the way a man does over the woman because in one sense the children are an extension of the woman's body. So her dying for her children is just taking care of herself. But the man is really sacrificing because there's a bit of a difference between the wife and the children. So he's got to be willing to die for the, what isn't just his own direct, his own flesh, taking care of himself. Yeah, the Titanic example is interesting too because it's almost like all women and children, not just their... Like, yeah, their yeah, women right. It's all women yeah, and children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why... The absurdity of having women in the military. I just yeah, yeah. <laughs> men die for women in general. You're partaking this thing. You Thank men, you. you have to be expected to die for women and children. But the idea of a woman dying for anybody is just absurd. And again, it's blood. Men shed blood. Women's blood. They bleed, and that's the sign of their fertility. But and that's why it used to be why women weren't allowed into the altar because they bled. But what's the heart of the Eucharist? A man's blood being shed because a man is kind of the problem and the solution but the woman is the one that her blood is a sign of her fertility not violent bloodshed but she will suffer and enjoy men's violence uh, but she by her just bleeding but not shedding blood she is responsive to that that's her fertility that's why eve gives birth to all living but a man can kill 
and a man can be killed, but he's he's up to something else. Is there something to do, I guess, with connection with, I guess, like, um, I guess women and children maybe being in common, I guess, and, mm-hmm. and like, the Titanic example, why it's not just mm-hmm. the, I guess, a private family, but it's more mm-hmm. of, like, the in common, women and children in common, is that kind of, does that yeah. relate to that? Well, isn't yeah. that yeah. Like Aristotle's mm-hmm. thing, like, mm-hmm. with, about women having authority or, like, being president? Mm-hmm. Remember that conversation that, like, like ascending or being like in charge of a military, like sending people into combat. Like mm-hmm. she has that mm-hmm. relation to everybody's like kids or like. You get I'm, it. I'm not sure what you mean. She has that relationship to other people's kids. Well, like Ashley's saying, like she has mm-hmm. like that like motherly mm-hmm. instinct to everybody, not just oh, her own. I see what you mean. Yeah. Kids. I know I'm not like, yeah, saying right. it very intelligently. Yeah. Because I was like. Well, I, I suppose you could say this is why I think people don't like the idea of having a female president, et cetera, because she's, she would be the mother of the country. Okay, well, what happens if you go to war? The idea of a mother sending people off to die doesn't yeah, quite seem right, right? Sense. right? Yes. That she could maternally take you in, she could feed you and do welfare, that idea of taking you into the home, but the idea of going to war, then suddenly being the role of the mother doesn't quite work. Even if you're Margaret Thatcher, something's not quite right about that. <laughs> yeah, she had to be postmenopausal or Elizabeth. You have to be virgin, so then you're more likely to conceive if they're virgin because you don't think of them as mothers. But the idea of a mother as mother, you know, I've got my three babies at home, and yeah, I'm going to call in the nukes. It just doesn't make any sense. Margaret Thatcher worked hard to like present herself as not the mother, right? Yeah, yeah. Presented herself like a man, right? Yeah. Did she have kids? Who knows? Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, right. I think she has kids. Yeah, but I don't know. Like I would never know. Yeah, you just don't think about that because you because if you think about it, it kind of undermines her political authority. Thanks for listening, everybody. For more of that, please visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2020, the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated, all rights reserved.